Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to another episode in Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, let's get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to give us a hand, please, please, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Facebook or really wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And also follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. I want to thank everybody that tuned in last week to hear our interview with Sean McIndoe and with Darren Kimball as we talked about his tenure in the NHL during the 90-91 season with the Quebec Nordiques and the St. Louis Blues. Last week's episode was by far our most listened to episode, so thanks for everybody that uh, that checked us out for the first time. This week we've got Greg Thaberge on the show. We did an interview with Greg probably a few weeks ago, and Greg talks about the 82-83 Washington Capitals season, which was an interesting time to be a Capitals fan considering the owner, Abe Poland, had actually threatened to move the team had they not beefed up their season tickets and gotten tax breaks from the local community. So we talk a lot about that in the beginning of the interview. And he also talks about David Poyle, of course, who's now the Nashville Predators GM, and I think probably one of the best GMs in NHL history. I mean, he is always looking down the road. He's always planning his next move. But what's crazy to me, with all the success he's had, he's never won a Stanley Cup. But that's a whole nother conversation. Back to Greg Thaberge. We talk to Greg about the Capitals. We talk about the big trade that happened in 1982. We talk about some X's and O's type stuff, kind of what his role was on the team. And that's all in part one of the interview. Part two, you'll definitely have to come back and check out. He tells some really funny stories, especially about a story about the entire team getting robbed in Las Vegas. Yeah, this is one I had never heard before. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. So definitely check out part two. Part one to kind of sets things up. We talk about the team, some X's and O's. And then part two, we get to the end of the season, making the playoffs for the first time and some comedy. I want to thank listener Glenn Payne for hooking me up with Greg Thaberge. He went ahead and sent me an IM and said, hey, I love the show. I've got a friend of mine you need to talk to, Greg. He's a great guy. And Glenn made an intro. And next thing you know, we were doing the interview. So if anybody hears this podcast, if there's somebody you want to hear or somebody that you know that you might think might make a great guest, shoot me an email at brettsmall84 at gmail.com. I always love talking hockey and I'll do anything to uh, pretty much improve or, or get good guests on the podcast. There's one caveat to that. I'll pretty much do anything in reason. I can't get arrested. But other than that, if you have an idea that we can use to get a guest on the show, send me an email. What the hell? Why not? One more thing I want to touch on before we go ahead and get uh, rolling with Greg Thaberge is Greg talks a little bit about the Washington Capitals fan club and how they helped keep the team in Washington. And as I'm sure you guys know, I'm constantly reading old newspapers, old issues of the hockey news, things like that, in order to do research for the interviews because I want to kind of have the guests go down memory lane and I want to assist them any way I can remember things, get good stories, things like that. One thing that always sticks out at me, though, is how active these fan clubs were in the 80s. They had a fan club national convention. It sounded like a lot of the players would uh, hang out with members of the fan club and things like that. And I know just from my experience that there are teams that still have fan clubs today, but I don't hear anything 
about fan clubs really anymore or that really the teams have much to do with them. So I'm kind of curious what everyone's experiences have been over the years with different fan clubs in the NHL. And so please post on our Facebook page, share us with some memories if you can. Um, I, I just found that fascinating that they were they there was a huge presence of fan clubs back then. And now you don't really hear about them. I don't know if I did a good job explaining that, but hopefully I did. Anyways, Enough about me babbling. Let's go ahead and get to Greg Thaburge as we review the 82-83 season. What was the state of the Washington Capitals in 1982? I know you had played the 81-82 season with them, but that summer in 82, what was the Washington Capitals organization like? That's a great question because it wasn't until I was down in Washington and it was just before training camp started and there was still uncertainty in the air, I felt. Brian Murray was taken over at the helm, and David Poyle was the new general manager, and they meant serious business. The Capitals indeed were going through an identity crisis. The team, actually owner Abe Poland, threatened to move the team. With all that chaos as a player on the team, how does that impact you? Well, I was only like a 21, 22, 23-year-old kid. So I did realize that there were some politics going on. I realized that Abe Poland, the owner, and he was a wonderful man and a, and a great land developer, um, he was looking for a tax break big time on uh, with, the, with the team. And he wanted certain uh, elements met when it came to uh, season's ticket holders. He didn't want empty seats. And he had been paying his dues for how many years uh, since... 1974 yep. so eight years yeah so he felt that it, it was time and uh when i reflect back then brett to be honest with you i i do remember but i don't really think it had a whole lot of impact on me as a player i had more i had bigger concerns when you were a marginal player on an nhl team you you were always looking in your rearview mirror as to who's coming up behind you to try to take your job and who do you, and looking ahead of you and you know, who do you have to play better than to take their job type of thing. As an NHL player who you just said you were marginal and how do you deal with that kind of stress with every morning waking up going, am I going to be in Hershey or am I going to be in Washington? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The game has evolved so much now where teams have actually life coaches and, and sports psychologists with the team and, you know, the communication with uh, the young players, they have player development coaches, they have special team power play development coaches, they have all kinds of different personalities there to help to help the players now because it's such a, a major, uh, you know, sports industry where, where money is huge. And uh, back then, you know, we didn't have any of that. Your anxiety level built up. The old cliche, sometimes you're as good as your last game or sometimes your last shift. You better not have a bad practice either because your job's on the line. Uh, that's the way I, I dealt with it. So I was, uh, I paid attention to detail. I tried to have uh, good work ethics all the time and, uh, you know, made sure I was prepared uh, to practice hard. When Brian Murray was at the helm, you, you better make sure you're ready to practice. You, you, you practice how you play and you better, and you pr better practice hard because when it comes to a game situation, that's the way you develop and learn by, by trying to keep Mike Gartner, uh, try to contain him when he's blowing down the, the neutral zone at uh, top speed. Uh, so you practice well, and then that's the way you learn and try to stay on top of your game. Gardner definitely had a pair of wheels on him at that time. As we talked about, 
Abe Poland had threatened to, to move the team. Supposedly, he had lost $20 million over the prior eight seasons. After searching and looking and trying to make things come together, he's able to bring on four new investors. One of them was no stranger to the National Hockey League. It was Dick Patrick, who is still involved with the Washington Capitals today. And his cousin is Craig Patrick. His grandfather had built the New York Rangers. His dad played and coached the New York Rangers. Do you remember anything about Dick Patrick from your time in Washington? I certainly do, Brett. I certainly do remember Dick Patrick. I'll tell you why, because once you say the Patrick name, Mm -hmm. you automatically associate it with the New York Rangers organization. Uh, I remember uh, my grandfather uh, speaking very well of the Patrick family when he played with the Bruins. Oh, that's right. I have a couple of pictures of him with... uh, with I think Lester Patrick and a couple of other Patricks that might have played. One is a great picture of uh, net front coverage where he takes him down and he's on top of him and you can see them having a chuckle together. That's a classic picture. But yeah, I knew who Dick was. I really respect him. He's done a wonderful job in the Washington Capital Organization. Within a week of Dick Patrick and the new investors coming on, Abe Pullen indicates that changes are coming and he fires the acting GM, Roger Crozier. Roger, who was 40 at the time, said this came as a surprise to him. What was your reaction when you see that the GM has now been let go? There's been new owners brought in. What were your thoughts? My thoughts? I I was kind of glad that the Crow uh, got the axe, to be honest with you. Sure. Um, (laughs) You know, the team, um, you know, we we weren't struggling, but um, my role and my um, status on the club uh, wasn't uh, looked upon as to be a starter. I think the following season under under Roger Crozier's regime, um, and or maybe Brian Murray's for that matter. When he was gone, I I, I kind of relished the fact that we I'm bringing in someone else new, and then I get a I get a fresh start with David Poyle um, coming in. And I did happen to know David Poyle from um, I married into the Mercury family, so uh, my, oh, my wow. yeah my wife's mother is uh, the older sister to Keith McCreary, who played in Atlanta when David Poyle was just beginning his career as into the front office administration staff type of thing. So David, I mentioned that right away, and uh, he really admired the McCreary family, of course. So right away, we had a mutual, we had a good uh, respect for each other, and uh, he treated me with respect, and I, and I uh, gave it back to him. Just after taking the job, David Poyle gets a call from Ivan Gunman, who at the time was the executive vice president of the Montreal Canadiens, no, right. to congratulate him on this new position. And I think you know what happens next. They pull off one of the biggest trades at the time in NHL history. The Capitals end up sending Rick Green and team captain Ryan Walter to the Habs and receive back Rod Langway, Craig Lachlan, Doug Jarvis, and Brian Engbaum. What did this trade do to the team? Well, there's no disrespect to Rick Green or, or Ryan Walter. Or any, or any of the other leaders that were there prior to Langway coming over and, and England coming over. But honestly, Brett, it gave, it gave the Capitals instant credibility and integrity all of a sudden. Uh, bringing over Stanley Cup experience, Doug Jarvis, one of the you know top centermen, great defensive player, Craig Lachlan, he was uncharted waters. He was untapped. We didn't know what type of ceiling he had. Scored some pretty big goals and played pretty well as a, you know, third line, almost top six forward at times. And then we had Brian Inglom, really played well on the back end. It was mature individual. And then Rod Langway, of course, like he he was unbelievable. Uh, came over 
And he just took control of that team with his leadership and the talk in the dressing room he would have, he'd get the guys together and he'd be um, like a, a liaison between Brian Murray, who, who ran a pretty tight ship. And it's three ways of doing things when you're under Brian Murray. There's the right way, the wrong way, and there's Murray's way. And you better, <laughs> and you better be doing it Murray's way. So, so Langway knew that, and, and he uh, would go in and talk to Brian on a daily basis. They had a great communication between the captain and, and Brian Murray. And uh, Langway would come out and, you know, voice his concerns to, to the players. And, uh, you know, that, that's the way it started. And we could just tell that that... You know, we had something going on. Rod, Rod played a ton. He he played like honest to Jesus. He had to play thirty and thirty-five minutes a game. Sometimes it was unbelievable, unbelievable. And then we had a youngster, uh, Scotty Stevens, paired up with Anglom, and, and Langway would take any of the the misfits back there, or the number you know four or five or six D man, and pair him up with Langway. So um, that trade really did wonders for the organization, and as I say, it gave us instant credibility and integrity. You jumped ahead a little bit, and I want to touch on this player. You mentioned a young, blonde-haired kid that was 18 years old, and he was drafted, and his name was Scott Stevens. You played defense with Scott. Did you see the talent then that he possessed? Absolutely, 100%. We were in awe. This kid came in playing one year junior B, one year of junior A with the Kitchener Rangers, and then he played National Hockey League as an 18-year-old. He played some football in high school, and what where we were really astounded at in uh, a couple of exhibition games, actually, one of his first exhibition games he had was in Hershey, and we were all sitting on the bench, and a guy by the name of Pierre LaRouche was coming down on him, and uh, Scott planted at his own defensive blue line, and he went down low, like in a three-point stance, down low, <laughs> and he... And I'm not kidding you. And, and he came up with his shoulders and he flipped LaRouche right over his shoulders. And LaRouche, LaRouche, he went flying. And we were all on the bench saying, did you just see that? Like, that was like, it was like football. Standing up flat-footed and checking a guy with that top speed. It was unbelievable skill he had and timing and a great radar. So as an 18-year-old kid, yeah, he was phenomenal to watch. And uh, he played very well as a, as a, as a young uh, defenseman in the league, which is not the easiest position to break in that. I know you were a defenseman, but how would you describe your game and how you fit in with the Washington Capitals? Uh, Brian Murray used to like to call me the power play specialist, so he was way ahead of his time, and that was that's what's trending these days is the power play specialist, and you're, you have those great special teams, but I was mainly used as probably a number five or six D-man playing against bottom six forwards. And then I was on the power play, uh, usually first string power play all the time. Brian Murray was a real tough coach to get on the referees and really encouraged us to work extremely hard to draw penalties because, well, as you well know, you, you know, you score a couple power plays a goal, one power play a goal a game, uh, you have a good, pretty good chance to win it. So he was really emphasizing draw penalties, work hard, and he was always chirping with the refs and getting calls. So we had a lot of power play opportunities. We worked on the power play all the time. I know in junior, uh, he had a really good squad out in Regina on the power play and had some good young players to work with. So he really emphasized special teams. Power play was one of them. The camp also includes the debut of number 66. And when I say number 66, immediately people think of Mario Lemieux. But it wasn't Mario. It was a young Czechoslovakian player. Actually, he wasn't so young. He was in his 30s. Milan Novik. 
Right. He was heralded, I think, as one of the first guys to come over Czechoslovakia. He only played one year in the NHL. Nowadays, teams are set up to accommodate people from tons of different backgrounds. How difficult was it for him to communicate or for you to communicate with him and for him to fit in? Well, that's a good question. Um, it was Milan Novi came over. He could speak English when he wanted to, but he was a pretty shy guy. Uh, he's a family man, short, stocky guy with lots of experience. It took him a while to adjust to the North American game. Uh, as you well know, it's, you know, back then they had a stigma attached to them. And uh, it didn't take long for Brian Trotche from the Islanders, mm-hmm. I think Milan's first game at the faceoff, faked like he was missed the puck and he came up and he just carved Milan right above the eye and gashed him open. And that just scarred Milan for a long time. It took oh, my gosh. Up. Oh, yeah. It was unbelievable. I was right there. I, I saw it happen. And, and Trotche just, yeah, it's just a flesh wound. I'll take my two or whatever it was he got for it. But uh, Milan was pretty good at he knew he was way ahead of his time. He knew how to set up the neutral zone trap. And, and sometimes he, he was on the penalty kill and was an excellent penalty killer at angling and cutting off, uh, you know, routing players into different lanes. So he, he was way ahead of his time. A very intelligent player, Milan was. And, uh, yeah, he, he was a pretty good professional coming over. I, I don't know. I think he might have been age 30 or 31 coming over with lots of international experience. So... A bit of a learning curve, but I think he had adjusted pretty well. I played against Milan when he went over to Europe, in, in Europe as well when he played for Zurich. You said he was carved up by Brian Trottier. Was that with a high stick? Oh, yeah. Yeah, high stick right off the faceoff at center ice. Wow. That yeah. that probably set the tone pretty quick early yeah. on. That was in New York, too. Yeah, it did. It was like, welcome to the National <laughs> Hockey League. You end up starting the season down in Hershey, and you talked about kind of being a little bit of a bubble player, and I know you went back and forth quite a bit. Do you recall at all what why you were sent down early on? You weren't there long. I know exactly what happened. I started down in Hershey because it was a numbers game, and, mm-hmm. and this is my own opinion. It said I was a, a sixth-round pick, and I was a sub-six-foot defenseman. I, I don't think... Washington really liked the appearance of me. I was a bit of an eyesore as a five foot ten defenseman that was considered a finesse skilled defenseman. I mean, back in the day, they wanted you know the the big tough brute guy that punished guys that cross checked and boxed out, and they already had two or three players up there in Washington like that. Darren Veach was uh, their number one draft pick, and that was my competition. So. They made sure that he had every opportunity to succeed, and why not? If you're if you're rated in the first round, you're drafted first round, then that's that's just the way it went. He ended up hurting himself that season, and so I got called up. And uh, you know, one man's misfortune is another man's fortune. Vici got uh, got injured, and I was able to capitalize, take his spot, and uh, I ended up uh, putting some pretty good numbers up. On October 26th, you are called up, just as you talked about. And the reason being, David Poyle lists that they need to pick up the power play, so why not bring in a power play specialist? Oh, yeah. Your promotion immediately pays dividends. By mid-November, the Capitals find themselves on a five-game undefeated streak after beating the Flames on November 16th. You led the way by being on the ice for all five goals. You quarterbacked the power play from the point, and the Capitals connected for three power play goals that game. I do remember that, Brett. I oh, really? Keep going. I'll tell you what helps that happen. Keep going. Well, I was going to say, what were you doing that made you so potent and made you such a good quarterback on the power play? I, re- I remember that particular game. First of all, I'll tell you why. Because that is the only game in my entire NHL uh, career that I received 
a star at the end of the game. I got third star. Got <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. You participated in five star. goals and they only gave you the third star? Oh, that's all. I, I was I was honored just to be in in the in in the star mentioned at third star in that game. It never was another star in my career, but uh, yeah, I, I was able to shoot the puck really quick from sixty feet away and get it away quick, uh, and that's what uh, that's what I think I really did well. I had a good good strong blue line hold, meaning holding the holding the offensive blue line and holding it as long as you can with pressure being put on you, puck pressure putting on you, and then. I was able to get my shot through. A lot of shots are blocked these days, but I used a Live 5 Titan, a 2020 20 and a 2030, and I was able to get my shot off really quick and keep it low. And a lot of the times it got through, and I, I was able to generate a lot of second assists from 60 feet away, get the shot on net. Who were some of the guys that you were playing well with on that power play? You talked about getting a lot of secondary assists. Who were some of the guys that you were able to connect with? Oh, we had a set. We had a couple set power plays. Brian Murray would. We'd like to use the diamond up high, mm-hmm. or we'd like to use what they call the spread rotation down low. Dennis Murrock was in a lot on it. Chris Valentine, Bobby Carpenter, Bent Gustafson, myself. Um, we had Kenny Houston. Doc would stand in front of that, get a lot of redirects and a lot of tips. You know, Alan Howarth was was a pretty good shooter. Craig Lachlan was second string power play as well. He could really snap that puck coming in off the half wall on his off wing side. Used a big Canadian with a great big wedge. (laughs) Murray really emphasized holding blue lines, an aggressive, you know, five man unit, and outnumber the opposition. And you don't whatever you do, do not take a penalty when you're in the offensive zone on a power play. That was a no no. I would say that would get you in trouble. Heading into December, the Washington Capitals reached 500 for the first time since the beginning of the season. By this point, things seemed to be really clicking for the Capitals. How did this team compare to previous Capitals teams that you had played on? For one thing, foundation and structure. Those are two key words. Foundation, you have to have a foundation. Where does it start? It starts right between the four by six. We had some consistent goaltending with with Al Jensen and Pat Riggin. Um, they really pushed each other well, and uh, you know we had Southpaw and Rigsy, and and Al Jensen was he was really good in uh, the athleticism department. Could telescope real well and follow the puck. He tracked the puck really well, and he was in really good shape. So that's where it started. Right then, we had a really good goaltending tandem. Goalies are known yes. for being a little quirky. Would these guys fit into that category? I wouldn't say they'd fit into that category, though. Certainly not Al Jensen. Al Jensen was a pretty level-headed guy, and he uh, was pretty serious when it came to his game. Riggsy, on the other hand, he was a little more, you know, less conservative and uh, would socialize a little bit more. And uh, But he, the goaltenders are a different breed. Yeah, one, <laughs> one, thing, yeah, one thing I can tell you that is... Uh, they're there to be number one, not a, not a backup. And we had two number ones. We had one A and one B. Who was one A, or who was number who was number one? I would have to say Al Jensen and and Riggsy would be one one A. So yeah, I didn't see the anything that they did uh, that was a little nutty or unpeculiar un- for a goaltender. But uh, and yeah. rolling forward by mid December, the Capitals are on a nine game unbeaten streak at home. We hear about the electricity of the Boston Garden and the old Forum and the Maple Leafs Garden. We don't hear a lot about the old Cap Center. Can you describe (laughs) to fans that building? (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that, Brett, because I always remember what a sellout was in in the Capitol Center there at the Cap Center. It was 18,130 
people in their seats was a total sellout. And it had a pretty good atmosphere uh, back in the day. They We drew really well against the Rangers and Philly. And, uh, you know, in that nine-game streak, they supported us really well. There was lots of fans from Largo, Maryland, and Prince George County and the D.C. Uh, district. And, uh, you know, they had a wonderful uh, fan club and booster club there. And, uh, you know, they had a they had a really good following. And I'm really happy for the Capitals fans and the surrounding area of D.C. this season with uh, the Capitals capturing the Stanley Cup. They finally paid dividends, and that area was rewarded. That reminds me, you know, you talked about the fan club just now. And the fan mm-hmm. club was a very active part of the team, keeping the team in Washington. Fan clubs still exist to this day, but I feel like they're they're very. You don't really hear a lot about them, and the and the players, by God, they don't interact with them at all. <laughs> at the time, did you guys interact a lot with the fan club? Yeah, there were special uh, promotions that uh, I think it was the PR director back then. I believe was Lou. Was it? Costello or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Costello. So he would arrange some type of functions where the fan club and the booster club would be involved, uh, sometimes for a little bit of a luncheon or or at a mall sometimes. But uh, after games, there are fans uh, and booster club uh, members waiting for autographs or conversations. But uh, I think that comes with, with uh, the territory then. If you're a professional player of any sort, you have to really – engage and welcome the fans because uh you know it it does come with the territory you you certainly have to communicate with them the caps continue to roll through december and keep the winning ways alive team wraps up a three-game road trip against the defending stanley cup champion new york islanders in a five to one smashing uh you score a goal off defenseman ken morrow during this game this was during the islanders heyday what do you remember about when you would play the new york islanders oh yeah i i really Oh, this it's not cruel to be kind statement, but I really, <laughs> I really enjoyed playing them. Uh, the Islanders, they were the Stanley cup champions and they had a wonderful roster. Uh, they had a good atmosphere on long Island. You know, they had a star studded lineup. When you go down the, the core of the uh, New York Islanders, they were just loaded. It started with Billy Smith and net. And then, uh, yeah, Roland Melanson as well, and then you get into the defense core of, you know, Dennis Potvin and Langevin, and they had that little guy, Thomas Johansson, Kenny Morrow, you had mentioned, tough guy, uh, even Paul Boudelier, uh, Gordy Lane was on that team mm-hmm. as well, played in Washington, so, and then you talk about their forwards, the likes of Bossy, Trotche, Bourne, and Gillies, and Tanelli. you know, they had some Nystrom, you know, <laughs> they had some... Pretty good uh, players to play against, and I didn't play a whole lot against their top six forwards, but I played uh, against uh, their bottom six for sure, and a lot on the power play. But an interesting story with Washington that season is uh, we went in to play them on the island, and our trainer at the time, uh, Bobby Tren, the late Bobby Tren, he forgot to pack three of my sticks for some strange reason. So he came to me on the side and said, hey, Burke, Burke, don't say anything because I'll get in trouble. I said, what's up, Trenny? He said, oh, I forgot to bring your sticks. I said, what? You forgot to bring my sticks? He goes, yeah. He says, well, I said, well, you know that I don't like anybody's sticks on our team because I'd be using them. Mike Gartner had the closest one I could try to use. But I said, what about on the other team? Can I go over and have a look at their their stick rack and maybe use one of theirs? He says, I'll check with their trainer and see. So he says, oh, yeah. He says you can go over there and have a look. 
see if one fits your your liking. So Trini and I go over, and we're being supervised by their trainer, and I'm, and I don't even look at the numbers. I just think, oh, where's the right-handed sticks? So I look at the right-handed sticks, and I pull the first one out. No, I don't like it. I pull the second one out. I said, geez, yeah, I like this. I like this one. It's nice. You know, it's a Titan, the same type of manufacturing I use. And uh, the trainer for their team looks at it and says, no, you can't use that one. <laughs> and, I, and I said, and then we both look at him and goes, why? And they said, do you see the number on it? And we looked at the number. It was number 22. He says, Mike Bossy? He goes, yeah, Mike Bossy's number. You can't use that. He's got a contract with Titan saying that he's the only one that can use it. So I ended up going back. I think I might have used Mike Gartner's stick. But, uh, yeah, that, that was funny. I was almost ready to use a Mike Bossy stick out there with the Washington Capitals. That's crazy. Even back yeah. then, the business, there was the contracts. You know, you don't think about in the early 80s, the NHL being a business. But I guess there were those endorsements and things like that. Oh, yeah, huge endorsement, especially if you're Mike Bossy and they oh, had already sure. won. They already won three Stanley Cups that season, that year. So During this game, Dennis Marouk opened the scoring for the team. Did you ever have a chance to kind of get to know Pee Wee? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Dennis, um, I'll tell, say one thing for Dennis. He was really warm and receptive to, uh, to everyone on the team, rookies especially. Um, when I was a rookie there in my first year, he would take me over to his house with a couple of other rookies, Errol Rouse, myself, and a couple of rookies would go to his his house in D.C. and in, in the D.C. area, him and his wife, Joni, and they had kids at the time, and you'd have a big pasta meal, and we would talk, and, you know, he would sort of uh, enlighten us about the professional ranks, and he had a lot of experience, too. But Dennis, uh, one thing, he was real serious when it came to point production, and he really wanted to make sure that the power play was efficient, and, you know, this is how it should run, and, you know, He's not a, he, he didn't get 62 goals for, for nothing. Probably, yeah. he, he, he was a good setup man, and he demanded the, he demanded the puck at times, uh, especially on the rotation down low, because he was good at it, and we, he wanted to win. He was competitive. Yep. So I, I knew Dennis pretty well when it's, as a rookie, and he has been up to our house, actually, here in, oh, wow. uh, in Sunny Sundridge. He came up and had a nice steak dinner and talked about the old days and reminisced, and yeah, we got together, and not too long ago, we saw each other at the... Uh, NHL uh, Alumni Gala Awards, uh, he was down there. I saw Roddy Langway had a good chat with Rod down there as well, too. So, yeah, we, we Dennis and I still keep in touch. Did you ever find your way over to his restaurant? I think he had a pretty popular restaurant at the time. Oh, yeah. I was over there. I still have uh, the NHL Slow Pitch Marook Sports Pub uh, downstairs. It's a baseball jersey that we wore at the NHL Slow Pitch Tournament. Yeah, was over to Marook's Pub there for a few times. Oh, Greg was such a nice guy. He's like one of these guys that I want to go to a bar and just sit and drink a beer with and just pick his brain for hours. And the thing is with Greg, he's so cool. He probably would let me do that. He'd probably just be like, hey, man, come on up to North Bay. We'll hang out. We'll grab a steak and we'll drink a couple of brews and I'll tell you some good NHL stories. And I forgot to mention this in the intro. You know, Greg's kind of from hockey royalty. I know we talked about the Patrick family, but his grandfather was Dick Clapper, who was talked about in the movie Slapshot, of course, old time hockey like Dick Clapper. And Greg's really proud about that. And he talks a lot about it. I, I definitely want to have him back on and do another interview where we talk more about his family heritage and the family history with the National Hockey League and things like that. Tune in Thursday at 8 a.m. for part two of our interview, where I think Greg kind of lets his hair down a little bit and tells us some pretty funny stories. He talks about staying late out after curfew. He tells a great story about the entire team getting robbed. I thought that was hilarious. So look forward to seeing everyone on Thursday, and I will talk with you then.